Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Cool. So, yeah, this morning, 5 o'clock, woke up to a text that said, Hey, uh, I feel like death. You're going to have to preach. So, here I am. Um, and that's really all that's about. So we're going to trust God's sovereignty, and we're going to trust that he is not shocked by this. Um, in fact, I think I was telling Brooke this morning, um, a lot of times sermons like this tend to be better sermons um, because we're just going to walk through a text, and we're going to trust the Holy Spirit is going to lead us in what we need to hear this morning. So I'm going to continue on in Ruth. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ruth chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to be taking a look at. And here's my hope this morning. My hope this morning uh, for us as we hear the word of God uh, and we ask the Holy Spirit to work in our lives um, is that we would see that God in his family lineage has brokenness. Right? God himself as he, in his wisdom, brought Christ incarnate, brought him through a family line that was not perfect, that had its issues, had its flaws, and yet still in the beautiful plan of redemption brings about the grace that we all need. And so my hope is that you would see this story through Ruth and her story in this final chapter. Now, we're just going to look at the first 12 verses, and Dwayne will close us out next week. But I hope that you can see that in this story. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses, and then we'll pray and then kind of give a little recap of what's been going on for those of you who either don't remember or have not been here. Um, And then we'll jump right in. So Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, by it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. And if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in his inheritance. Sorry, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is God's word. Let us go to him in prayer and ask him to bless this time this morning. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are not shocked by anything that goes on. Lord, you have a plan, even in times like this where it seems a little bit out of control. Lord, but even as the story of Ruth this morning can remind us, when it seems to be out of control or when it seems like there may be a tragic end, Lord, you remind us that your plan for your people is good, so good that uh, it is better than they would and could even imagine. And so, Lord, I, I pray that through this story of Ruth, through this transaction that we find here, and through the wisdom of Boaz, Lord, we would learn more about you, more of your plan to redeem your people, more of your love for widows and orphans, and Lord, that it would impact us in such a way to live for your name and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been with us uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of Ruth and we've come to chapter four, but I want to give you kind of a little breakdown of what's been going on, right? We start off Ruth and Ruth one with a famine where Elimelech takes his family to Moab. And we learn from that first chapter and that first sermon that that was a tragedy in the sense that Elimelech would take his people to a place that God had declared not good. And Elimelech then dies. But not only does he die, the two sons, Maon, Malon and Kilion, also die. And they have two wives, one Orpha and one Ruth. And so Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, is in, Moabite, in Moab with her Moabite daughters-in-law. And she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And we learn that the only one that comes with her is Ruth. And Ruth goes with her, leaving all that she has. Any opportunity for a family, any gods that she might have worshipped, any family that she did have, she left to go and follow Naomi. But also we find out in chapter 1, to go and follow the Lord that Naomi worships. So this Moabite woman coming to Bethlehem, knowing that she would be looked upon not very highly in Israel, follows her mother-in-law. And we learn from Naomi's lineage that the men in Israel would not have looked highly upon her because she was from a line of incest as well as a line of deceiving women. 
There's a story in the Old Testament of 24,000 Moabites being struck down because they decided to try to woo Israelite men against God's command. And so Moab had a very bad name. The Moabites were not looked highly upon in Israel. And yet Ruth decides to go back with her mother-in-law and trust God who she worshiped. So we find in Ruth 2 then that in order to survive, because of all the things that are against Ruth, she decides to go and work, right? And in God's plan, in God's providence, he brings her to Boaz's field. And through this story, through this work, and through even Boaz's kindness, right, Ruth goes home and tells her mother, this is all that's happened. And immediately, Naomi changes her mind. She gets encouraged and starts to create a plan for Ruth to try to get with Boaz. And as we saw last week in chapter 3, her mother-in-law, Naomi, gave her some pretty questionable wisdom on how to approach Boaz and what to do when he was at the threshing floor at the end of the season. Now we found out that Boaz is a man of integrity, is a man who trusted the Lord, and so he did not sleep with Ruth but instead he comes to her and tells her that he's going to marry her in his integrity, in his trust of the Lord. But we find out at the end of chapter 3 that should have really been kind of a cliffhanger as we're walking through this story that there was another. Boaz tells Ruth that there is another redeemer who could step in front of him. And he says, we'll wait. I'll go and deal with this. And we'll trust the Lord and we'll see what he does for us. And so you see Boaz's wisdom and his shrewdness in this next chapter, in chapter 4. Because the first thing he does is he immediately goes to the gate and goes and talks to the elders of the city. And is like, this is what's going on. Let me call this other redeemer in. But as we also saw in his conversation, there was a bit of shrewdness that we see in his talk of how he presents what that other redeemer would have. So the first thing I want you guys to see this morning in how Boaz interacts with the fellow men of his city is that he takes a risk. And here's what I want us to kind of focus on is this main point this morning is that godly wisdom and godly love is going to take wise risks. This is what we see in Boaz, is that godly, his godly wisdom and his godly love for Ruth, he takes a wise risk. Now I'm going to ask a question here this morning. Most of you guys may know, may not know, but um, how many of you would characterize yourself as left brain, right? Left brain being very logical. I don't really deal with my emotions. I don't want to deal with my emotions. Math. This is how I'm going to make these things function, linear. Anybody left brain dominant? I know I am. I tend to be. All right, anybody right brain dominant? They're in the fields. They love to tell stories. They're, they, I mean, not dominated by their emotions, but anybody right brain? Okay, cool. Awesome. So here's the, here is an interesting piece about Boaz that we find in Ruth 4, is that he's sort of a renaissance man that he is not dominated by his left brain or his right brain, but that he uses biblical wisdom to ensure the redemption of Ruth using both left and right. 
But I want to point out what we know about Boaz before we get into his dealings, right? What we know about Boaz from the last chapter, last couple of chapters and on, is that he is not controlled by his emotions. So when we find out in the end of chapter 3 that there was another redeemer, what, what does he do? He doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. He's not controlled by his emotions. You see, if this was a 21st century type of love, what you would see from Boaz is that he would do anything that he could because he was controlled by his love for Ruth. He would do anything he could to try to marry her. But instead, because he's not controlled by his emotions, because he doesn't panic, he tells her, this is what we're going to do because this is the law of God. And we're going to trust that God will take care of you and God will take care of this situation. But what we also know about Boaz is that he's not controlled by his sexual desires. We learned this last week in the, the situation of this, the threshing floor, right? We see that he was a controlled man who trusted the Lord even when it came to temptation. Again, looking at a 21st century relationship, this might not be the case. Boaz could have easily been to Ruth, hey, you know what, we're just mammals. Let's just do what we're intended to do. But that wasn't Boaz's character. But what we see from Boaz is that he was actually fighting for Ruth. But he was fighting for her in a very biblical and loving, wise way. He was not controlled by his desires. He was not controlled by his emotions. He wasn't a type that was going to run out and say, I am so desperate for Ruth that I'm just going to do what I need to do to marry her, and I'm not going to follow the law. I'm not going to trust God's sovereignty or God's plan in how he has designed things. No, what he does is he trusts the Lord, and he follows God's design for his people. Because of Boaz's love for Ruth and Naomi, and ultimately his love for God and God's people, he lives in such a way that points Ruth and those reading the story to God. We also see that Boaz doesn't see Ruth as an object. He sees her as a daughter of God. And because he sees her as a daughter of God, he's going to act in such a way that points her to him. And so here is his, his right-brained emotions, but not being dominated by his sinful desires. But we also see his left brain, that he has a plan, that in his passions and in his pursuits, he has a plan. He has a plan to redeem Ruth and in trusting the Lord, he goes to the people at the gate and at the city. But what we find here in this story of how he works this plan out, we find the other redeemer. But what's interesting to note as we've read through Ruth 4 is that this other redeemer is not named. And I want to point this out to you in this story because a guy that's not named, most often in the Old Testament, is that he is receiving judgment for not being named. That the way that he lives and the way that he acts is going to reveal his character. And he's being contrasted to Boaz. And how Boaz was named by the narrator in this story is a 
highlight of this man not being named in this story. So let's ask the question, who is he and why is he here? So the first reason why we find this no-name character here is because of two Old Testament laws that are in play. In Leviticus 25, which I expect all of you to know, right? So you're just going to understand what I'm saying. Leviticus 25, the law is given that when a husband dies, the closest member of that family can redeem and take care of the widow. He's actually called to do this. That was his job, is to redeem that family member and take care of the widow. But we also find in Deuteronomy 25 that this closest relative takes on the children, if there are children, and if they're not, any of the child that comes from this new marriage or this redemption is named for the legacy of the man who died. So you think about this, this no-name character or Boaz, when they marry Ruth, that legacy doesn't go to Boaz's legacy, it goes to Malon, who died through Ruth. And so this is, this is what the law had set up. That when a redeemer came in, they would take on the name of the dead husband. That would not be their legacy, but the one who had died. And this is important to remember because in Israelite time, kids and food were everything, right? Kids meant that there was a lasting legacy. That when they got old, they had children to take care of them. Their kids would go out and work and take care of the family and take care of the family's name. And so the more children you had, the bigger the legacy that you would own. And land meant food and wealth, right? In an agrarian culture, having land meant that you would have food to take care of your family and that more land meant more wealth and more ability to trade and work in the country. And so it was important for you as a man in this culture, you as a family, to have your own kids and your own land for legacy and for food and to be able to take care of your family. And so all these things, this no-name character had to think through as he learned that he was the next redeemer in line. But here's an interesting thing from Deuteronomy 25, and again, I expected you guys to know this, but I'm going to bring it up, is that in Deuteronomy 25, there was actually a provision for women. And it was the shame of a man. And in this, God is highlighting the importance of taking care of both widows and orphans. You see, in Deuteronomy 25, if the Redeemer, the next in line, were to refuse taking care of his kinsman's family... The woman could go up to him and shame him. It was very interesting how she would shame him because she would be able to walk up to him in the midst of the elders. She'd be able to spit on him, right? Hockaloogie, just spit on him, spit in his face, and then take his sandal as a form of shame. So what would be happening here is that that man would be shamed and have a nickname of the one sandaled man, right? The kids would go around and make fun of, oh, your grandfather's the one with one sandal. But in a culture, here, here's, here's the reason why I want to point this out. In a culture that is built up on honor and on shame, to refuse to take over 
your dead family's family or dead relative's family was a steep price. That's why these laws were such big deals. Because what these laws are actually showing us is the heart of God. These laws were showing us that it was a big deal to God to take care of widows and orphans. And when you didn't, you were shamed. Which is one of the reasons the narrator is pointing at the no-named man here. Is that he was being judged by this story. Because he was not doing what God called his people to do. And that was to take care of widows and orphans. Now what's also interesting is this is a Hebrew idiom that's happening in this story. To have a no name meant that as you're reading this, this is just a, oh, so-and-so. Right? He doesn't have a name. So it's contrasting Boaz and so-and-so. And as I said before, it implies a sort of judgment. And what the narrator is doing is in judging him, he's contrasting him to Boaz. But what we find as well in this story is that this man who hears about the land that he may pick up from Naomi doesn't think through all that he was also supposed to take in Ruth. And this is where we find Boaz beginning to be a very wise and shrewd man and having a plan to take care of Ruth and Naomi. And he's taking care of them because he understands that he's been taken care of by God. Look in verse 2 again. Boaz begins to put him to the task, and I love, I love this narrative of this story. We find in verse 2, Boaz says this. He took ten men of the elders to the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. So what he's doing is he's bringing the law around. He's bringing witnesses in. And he's saying, okay, this is so important that I'm going to make sure that this is done by the law. And then he says in verses 3 through 4, the situation that we find Naomi in, right? He's like, okay, so-and-so, you heard about Naomi, right? You heard that she's back and she's got this sweet land, but you think about she's old. And if you redeem her land, you're going to get that land. And you're going to have wealth. And you're going to have legacy. And the guy who hears it, he's like, yeah, that's good. I think I will redeem that land. I think I will take on Naomi and redeem Elimelech's line. And so Boaz is like, yeah, smart man. Oh, hey, and this is where his shrewdness comes in and his wisdom comes in. And he says, by the way, if you redeem Naomi, you're also going to redeem that Moabite woman, Ruth. And this is what happens, right? The guy's like, oh, hey, hold up. I didn't know about this. I didn't know about this Moabite woman that is also a part of Naomi's land. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if that's something that I want to do. And he backs out, right? What he's doing is he's only using his left side of his brain. He's thinking through and trying to minimize his shame and maximize his honor. Because first, all he wants to do is redeem Naomi's land. But he doesn't want to redeem Naomi or her, peop or her family or her land because he is compelled by God and compelled by his love for God's people. No, what he's doing is he's trying to maximize his own wealth. He's trying to maximize his own legacy. Really what he is, he's a gold digger, right? Cue the song, 
I'm not going to sing it, but he's a gold digger. And what he's doing here is he's perpetuating a broken family line. Because all he's doing is he's trying to maximize his own life, his own self, his own wealth, and he's only thinking about himself. And Boaz exposes him because Boaz has a heart for Ruth and a heart for Naomi and a heart for God and God's people. And when this no-name man finds out about Ruth, he knows he's going to lose his honor. All the things that we just talked about when it came to the Moabite women, he knows that people are going to look at him with shame. Oh, you married that Moabite woman, huh? Your legacy isn't even carried on because now you've got Moabite children that you are taking care of. And he says no to the deal. Because of the shame of marrying Ruth, he'd rather be known as the guy with one sandal. He'd rather be known as the one who shames himself through walking around in this way. Now what's interesting is that we open up the book of Ruth almost the same way that we close this book. Right? If we were to stop here, we could see a very similar mirror or parallel to both Orpah and this no-name character. Both people minimizing their risk. Orpah looked at Naomi's life and saw that there was no hope and there was no future and there was no family. And so she left and did not attach herself like Ruth did. And so Ruth 1 kind of opens with the tragedy, right? And Ruth 4, if we were to stop here, seems to end in a tragedy. Because this no-name character does not want to attach himself to Ruth because he doesn't see a hope and a future and his own family. But he tries to maximize his own legacy and doesn't attach himself to Ruth. And he leaves Ruth in a bind to save his own life, to save his own legacy. And yet the irony here is that he's the one that isn't named. The irony here is that he's the one that actually loses his life and legacy. And as we look towards the New Testament, what, what does Jesus say? If you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. But biblical wisdom that we find in this story is that Boaz loves like God loves. He takes a risk in this business deal, but he also takes a risk in being the redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. As one pastor puts it, the way you measure love for someone is not by or through your emotions, right? It's not this infatuation of love, this how pretty they look or how you feel about them and, and, and how the butterflies might be. Right? But it's also not through goals and maximizing your life. How many kids or what job you might have or how they can come alongside you and help you succeed in life. The way you measure your love for someone is through deep commitment to them because of the deep commitment God has given to you as a believer in Christ. 
And that's what a picture of marriage looks like, right? It's a deep commitment to one another based on the love that God has shown you in Christ. But what's interesting in in how I opened this morning is I wanted you to, to see a hope through this part of the story. If you've ever felt like there might be a brokenness in your life or your family or where you've come from, Maybe there has been a perpetuation of just terrible family of origin ordeals that have led you to live the way you've lived in or outside of relationships. I want you to take a look at verse 11 and 12, because this is a very, very interesting ending to this part of the story. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So here's what I want to say, first of all. One of the reasons why the Old Testament as people of God is important to us is because without it, we, we don't understand how interesting this story can be, right? Because look at the people that are named, Rachel and Leah, Tamar, Judah, and Perez. Rachel and Leah, we, we like to make this story about Rachel and Leah as a, a highlight because those are Jacob's wives. But in reality, if you look at the story of Jacob, both of them fought for Jacob's attention And both of them tried to do things in such a way to harm one another because one or the other were jealous of each other. So that's an interesting blessing to give to both of Boaz and Ruth, right? May May your house be like that of a reality TV show. Your wives are jealous of each other. That's kind of weird. But then you move on to the story of Tamar. And we, we know through this story that Tamar acted like a prostitute because she was raped by her brother-in-law and he would not perpetuate her line because of that. And so she acts like a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law. And then when she becomes pregnant, reveals to him what she had done. Now, I'm not trying to highlight or say anything about that story other than that it is a broken situation. The same way that Rachel and Leah is a broken situation. And so why would... These men at the city gates say, may your family be like this family. Well, I want you to jump over to Matthew 1, because if we were to stop here, it can seem very, very odd. Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy. And I want to highlight in this genealogy five names. 
that you may be familiar with. Starting in verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Actually, let me go up to verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And so on, we get down to Boaz and Rahab, and on to Ruth. And we know through the lineage, all the way down to the end of Matthew 1, we find that David was the son of Bathsheba. And so Matthew uses and connects this lineage that we find at the end of Ruth, if you notice at the end of this chapter, there's a genealogy that connects these same names. And what the narrator is trying to highlight here is that even in these broken narratives, the redemption of a child by this young woman is coming. And he's showing that even in this broken story, the whole story of Ruth can be pointed out that it is happening through the time of the judges, right? We talked about this in chapter 1, that the refrain in Judges with the people were doing all that they thought was good in their own eyes. And so what this part of the story is trying to show us is that even in a broken, what could seem destitute or very hard situation, God is still redeeming and blessing through this child. And that child we now know is Christ, the one who has come through these women, the one who's come through this lineage that God has highlighted. And the truth that we can take from this story this morning is that even in this brokenness, even in this line that God doesn't have a, a perfect family, Jesus doesn't come through this perfect lineage, is that because of Christ, we can have hope no matter where we come from. No matter the sin, no matter the shame, no matter where we have felt pain or brokenness, no matter where someone has done something to you where there is still shame and brokenness there, because of Christ, we have hope. Because of this baby that comes through this young woman, we can look to the cross and hope. That no matter our family, no matter our lineage, when we are in Christ, we are freed. We are a hopeful and joyful people. That we're not defined by, by our past histories or our family lines or our family lineages or whatever it might be. We are defined in Christ. And he has set us free. And so this beautiful story points us to this reality. That this young baby, and yes, this young baby that came from Ruth and Boaz is highlighted here not as just the point of the story, point us to the greater lineage that is to come. And so I want you guys to see how this also connects to our own lives in this truth and in this reality. So here we are with the story of Ruth. 
the story of Naomi, this story of Boaz, and that through their line is the great Redeemer to come. And because of him, we as people in Christ have hope. And it's not just a hope that our families can be made new and restored, although that is true, but the ultimate hope that we have is that our sins have been forgiven in Christ on the cross. That his life that we could never live, his death that we so rightly deserved, and his resurrection has completed our adoption and our election as children of God. And we can have hope and we can rest in that. And that we can see that this was God's plan even through a hard time, even through a time in which people were just doing whatever was right in their own eyes. God in his sovereignty and his kindness continues his covenant to his people. And so we can trust in that goodness and that kindness as people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great grace and your mercy that you've shown to us. Thank you that in this story of Ruth, we can see your goodness and your kindness to us, even in the midst of broken families, even in the midst of pasts, of shame. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would find comfort and hope in the story of Ruth. That you are working in your people in such a way for your glory and for our good. And Lord, I pray that as we come into a time of communion where we remember and reflect on what you have done, that you would show us that goodness, show us that kindness, and that we are in you, and we have hope and, and joy as believers in Christ. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this reality. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at